Well, as was mentioned before, we are um, privileged to have gone through the book of Job. We spent four weeks in Job studying it together, and now we are resuming our study through the Gospel of John. And if you'll remember that Job was introduced as a man. He was a blameless and upright man. But John gives us a different picture of a different person. Jesus is introduced as the Word. The Word who became flesh. The Word who became flesh and dwelled among us. He tabernacled among us. We read in chapter 2 of Job that the suffering and the persecution that was brought upon him was without reason, we're told in the text. But we're told by John that Jesus was the Lamb who came to save his people from their sins. We spend the better part of Job considering why it is exactly that he is suffering. What has he done wrong? But we read over and over and over again in, Job, in John rather that Jesus came to do the will of his Father. And that Jesus and his Father are one. And we conclude, Job, in considering this glory of God, this majesty of God, the creator of the universe. And Job is brought to repentance. He's brought to dust and ashes. Jesus would be brought under the penalty of death, not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. And as we return to John, we want to uh, consider the context. Where are we at in this book? And as was mentioned before, uh, previously we looked at Lazarus, Lazarus being raised from the dead, and many of the miracles that took place in John are leading to this sort of climactic miracle. Everything that follows flows from what happens here. It turns and heads rather rapidly to the climax of the book, the death and resurrection of Jesus himself. So Lazarus is raised from the dead. Caiaphas, the high priest, gives a prophecy. And then we're told that the Passover is at hand. And people are beginning to gather. The, the city of Jerusalem is swelling. You can imagine the streets are busy. They're crowded with people. The sounds of animals. People are gathering from all around to Jerusalem. And we end chapter 11 considering the crowds and the chief priests and Pharisees. The crowds are looking for Jesus. They're wondering if he's going to gather into Jerusalem. Is he coming to the Passover? While the chief priests and the Pharisees plot murder. We're told that they put out an edict. Arrest him on sight if you see him. But Jesus isn't yet in Jerusalem. In fact, he is gathered in a home just outside the city with some of his best friends. They've thrown a dinner party for him. He's there with Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. He's there with Martha. She's serving, as she often does. He's there with Mary. And Mary does a wonderful gift, a service to him that we'll consider in a moment. Judas is there, but not just Judas. Notice how the gospel writer clarifies who we're talking about. This is Judas Iscariot. This is a specific Judas, Iscariot. He is actually one of the twelve, we're told, one of his disciples. But more than that, he who was about to betray him. He's present at this supper. Now, what we're going to consider 
three main points, three main doctrines, three main truths we hope to glean from the text. And they're very simple, they're very straightforward. We want to consider what love for Jesus looks like. What does it look like? We want to consider what worldly love looks like. And then finally, we want to consider what Jesus' love looks like. So first, what does love for the Lord Jesus look like? Love for the Lord Jesus is, first, costly. Look at verse 3, the first part. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Now it's helpful for us to remind ourselves that the, the writers of the scriptures aren't interested in wasting ink. They're not just out to write as many words as they possibly can. They're very particular. The Spirit of God works through these men to capture precisely what he intends to capture. Here we're told not just any ointment, we're told it's a pound of it. About the size of a soda can, 12 ounces contained in an alabaster flask we read in the other gospel accounts. 12 ounces, it's a lot. But it's, it's not just a pound, it's a pound of expensive ointment. How expensive? Judas helps us here. 300 denarii. Now, a denarii is a day laborer's wage. If you worked a full day, you got one denarii. So 300 days of labor. That's pretty expensive ointment. Now, this ointment is made from nard. Nard would have been imported from East India. It would have been highly aromatic. The closest thing maybe to help you to understand maybe what it was like is to consider the drink chai tea. If you've ever had chai tea or been around somebody who's drinking chai tea, it's a very aromatic beverage. You know that it's there. The chief ingredient, cardamom, imported from India. And also hints of cinnamon. So a wonderful aromatic smell would have begun to fill this room. But Mary doesn't have a flask of expensive ointment made from nard. She actually has a flask of expensive ointment made from pure nard. It's the very best. Mary is giving Jesus her very, very, very best. She's not holding back. Consider the story of Cain and Abel, if you will, for a moment. They both brought the Lord an offering. But Abel brought the Lord the first fruits, or the best of his offering. And we're told that the Lord had regard for Abel's offering and not Cain's. And this produced in Cain jealousy, which so often leads to anger, which so often leads to murder. And we'll see that the heart of Judas has these same kind of inclinations. He's a bit jealous of the use of this ointment. So love for the Lord Jesus is costly. But love for the Lord Jesus is also rooted in faith. It's rooted in faith. Verse 3, Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. Like Caiaphas before her, Mary's action goes beyond her knowledge. She's doing a good deed and we're told she's anointing him and she has a glimmer of what exactly is to come. Now we know that Aaron, the priest in the Old Testament, 
They were anointed. We know that Messiah means anointed one. We also know that kings are anointed. We know that Saul was set apart as a king when Samuel anointed him, as was David, as was Solomon. The paradox here is that Mary is anointing him as king, as priest, and yet Jesus will pass through the darkness of death before he's enthroned. Mary's giving Jesus the flowers before the funeral, so to speak. She has received from him a gift, namely faith in who he is, the Messiah, the one who's come to reconcile his people to himself. She believes this, and she's now giving it back. We have salvation as a gift from God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. Mary finds her act of love rooted in faith. And we know in chapter 12, chapter 12 verse 13, that when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he will be hailed as a king, which causes a lot of confusion when Jesus is buried. So love is costly. Love is rooted in faith. Love is also marked by humility. Love for Jesus is marked by humility. Look again at verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Really, that is a remarkable gesture of love for Mary. Now, we do read in the other gospel accounts that this anointing began on Jesus' head. But as we said, it's 12 ounces of ointment. It eventually makes its way to, its, to his feet. And John wants to draw our attention to his feet. We know that in the very next chapter, he himself is going to further condescend to clean the nasty feet of his disciples as a gesture of his love for them. But here Mary finds herself at his feet. In order for her to have wiped his feet, she would have had to have let down her hair. She would have broke convention. She would have broke cultural custom. But it's not as if Mary looked around the room and everybody present and said to herself, how can I prove myself to be pious? How can I prove myself to be the most righteous in this room? No, Mary is so caught up in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, she's not thinking about culture, she's not thinking about convention, she's thinking about him and him alone. Love for the Lord Jesus is marked by humility. And lest we think that Mary came up with the idea. Let us remind ourselves of who she is at the feet of. We're told that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being found in human form. He suffered to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not only did Jesus go from the earth to the cross, but he left heaven's glory to become a man and to suffer with us. He took upon himself flesh. Mary is reflecting her Lord. She is imitating her Lord. It wasn't her idea, it was his. Love for the Lord Jesus is costly. It's rooted in faith. It's marked by humility. But look at the very last sentence in chapter 3. We're told the house was filled 
with the fragrance of perfume. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 6, you might remember that we're told God was grieved in his heart. He was grieved at the sin of human beings made in his own image. And thus he set apart Noah. And after the great deluge, the great flood, we're told that Noah departed the ark and erected an altar and offered a sacrifice to the Lord God. And we're told that the Lord, when he smelled the aroma, he said, by covenant, no longer will I flood the earth for the heart of men is evil from their youth. And he put a bow in the sky. We read the refrain often in Leviticus of a pleasing aroma going up to God. But if we understand the burning of animal flesh and carcasses, we know we're not talking about a, a smell with our nose that actually is pleasant. The Lord is satisfied at what the smell represents, namely sacrifice, atonement. So that Paul could go on in Ephesians chapter 5 and say, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This room is filled with a fragrant aroma reminding us of this imminent sacrifice. Now, as Mary is expressing her love for the Lord Jesus, Judas objects. He meets Mary's deed with words, and so often this is the case with those who are critical at heart. They meet deeds with words. Many of you may have heard the story of D.L. Moody, the great evangelist of the 20th century, who had a woman approach him and say to him, I don't, I don't like your way of evangelism. To which D.L. Moody replied, well, neither do I. How do you do it? She said, well, I don't. And he said, well, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. A critical spirit. And here Judas pipes up. He begins to talk. And here we learn what worldly love is. We've seen Mary's act. We've seen what love for the Lord Jesus looks like. Now we turn our attention to what worldly love looks like. First, worldly love is self-righteous. Look at verse 5. Judas said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? Why did we not sell it for 300 denarii? It's as good as saying, I would have sold it for 300 denarii. Judas is judging Mary's action on the basis of his own ethical standard. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When the serpent tempted, the serpent said, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. All discussion of ethics has to start at that point. That the discussion itself is predicated on our own human depravity. It's predicated on our own wickedness. It's predicated on the fall. God is the great arbiter of truth. God is the great arbiter of what is good and what is evil. Not us. Judas here erects his own standard. And by his standard, he judges Mary. 
Worldly love is self-righteous, but worldly love is also pragmatic. Look at verses 5 and 6. Why was it not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor. More can be done with this ointment. This is, this is a waste. There's a more profitable way. Surely there's a better way, a way that works. This is part of the human condition. If we remember the question posed to Jesus in John chapter 6, they said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? We've got to do something. And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Human heart is prone to pragmatism. Jesus gave us the first and great commandment. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two rest all of the prophets and the law. The reality is, Jesus saw no dichotomy between love for God and love for neighbor. In fact, we can look at the onset of his ministry for an example. In Matthew chapter 4, we're told that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, first things first, so to speak, and the other equal half, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. He concerned himself with both body and soul. He saw no dichotomy between the proclamation of the gospel and the healing of the body. It's what you do. In fact, he says, he will go on to say in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's what love does. Love for neighbor that does not flow out of love for God is idolatry. Love for God that does not result in love for neighbor is hypocrisy. They both exist. Love is, worldly love is pragmatic. Consider the story of Saul. We already mentioned him. Saul was, of course, uh, anointed by Samuel, and he was anointed after Israel rejected God as their king. And Saul was given a task. He was told to go and eradicate the land of the Amalekites. Rid the land of the Amal Amalekites. Get rid of them. They had been evil from their youth. They sacrificed their children. They worshipped false gods. Their time is up. Utterly destroy them. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 9, we read, But Saul and the people spared Agag, the king of Amalek, and the best sheep of the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. Samuel comes on to the scene in verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? and the lowing of the oxen that I hear. And Samuel said, Though you are a little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. 
Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Now listen to Saul's response. Verse 20, And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things, devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Saul thought he could one-up God. I'll do you one better. I'll bring it back and I'll sacrifice it for you. Pragmatism. And Samuel says, verse 22, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And once again, we're left looking for another king. Worldly love is self-righteous. Worldly love is pragmatic. Worldly love is also covetous. Worldly love is greedy. Look at verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. There's greed in his heart. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Judas had a different love, namely a love for money. But notice how how John describes him. He doesn't say Judas used to steal. He first says Judas was a thief. Judas is a thief who steals. He, He is not a thief because he steals. He steals because he's a thief. That is his identity. And for us, there is good news for which we ought to be reminded. For Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. All of those things are identities. Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is good news. Worldly love is covetous, it's greedy. Worldly love is also fickle. Now remember that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and that that work, that expression of divine power, as you might imagine, caught the attention of many. Lazarus became a draw to some and a threat to others. A draw to the crowds. Look at verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. The crowd had a love for novelty. 
They wanted to see something new. This happens regularly in the Gospel of John. Over and over again, they want to see something new. They want to see a new trick. Jesus, show us another trick. This is no different than when Paul encountered in Areopagus in Acts chapter 17. We're told that the philosophers and the people would gather together to hear something new. There's something about the human condition that desires something new. It's why we always wake up in the morning and check our social media feeds or why we read the newspapers, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, or the Washington Post. It's why we have in our phones the draft days for various sporting events or the trade deadlines for various sporting events. We want to see something new. It's why we go to the movie theater. It's why we set our reminders for television shows. We want to see something new. We love novelty. That's part of our condition. And it's not all bad, but here they love novelty in lieu of the Lord of glory. Worldly love is fickle. It moves from one thing to another. It can't be satiated by anything. It was made for something more, namely God himself. So worldly love is self-righteous, it's pragmatic, it's covetous, it's fickle, and finally it's oppressive. Look at verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. They loved their position. They loved power. They loved their place. History's full of the sound of crashing thrones of kings who subjugated peoples, tyrants who ruled over them. But lest we think that Kings are the only guilty party. Consider anybody who has any power over anyone. Consider a parent who has power over a child. Perhaps a doctor or medical professional. Perhaps a pastor or deacon. Consider what happens when they have power over another. If you want to know a man's character, give him power. See what happens. At the, at the root of this hunger for power and this, this need to oppress others is a heart of insecurity. It's a heart that's longing to exalt itself, to empower itself. Worldly love is oppressive. So we've considered love for Jesus. We've considered worldly love. But now let's look at the love of Jesus himself. Let's consider verses 7 and 8. The love of Jesus is mediatorial. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone. Leave her alone. He intercedes on behalf of Mary. He is our great high priest. Hebrews 7 would say it this way, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What a wonderful high priest we have. He mediates for us a better covenant. He prays for us. He intercedes for us. And we see it here on Mary's behalf. Let her alone. The love of Jesus is mediatorial. The love of Jesus is also sovereign. 
let her alone. He said this on behalf of Mary, but he directed it at Judas. Leave her alone, Judas. She's mine. He has all authority. Mary anoints Jesus as king and priest, and with this, with this kingly rule, what does Jesus do with his power? He protects his own. He keeps them to the end. He rebukes Judas. He is as a shepherd. If you consider what shepherds are willing to do to protect their sheep, they stand in the face of lions and bears, as David would tell us. They stare them down. They fight them. They protect their own. The Lord is our shepherd. He's our shepherd. We shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his own name's sake. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for he is with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our head with oil. Our cup overflows. The love of Jesus is sovereign. He is for us. Not only does he intercede for us, not only does he use his power for the good of his people, but his love is abiding. Look at verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus is prophetic. He's our prophet. He knows all that is to happen, the end from the beginning. His love is perpetual. In fact, we're told in chapter 13, verse 1, listen to these words. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His love is abiding. It would cause Paul to write these words, Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Love of Jesus is mediatorial, it's sovereign, and it is abiding. Let's conclude with just a few points of application. Let us consider the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. So first, do we consider him worthy of costly sacrifice? When we consider our resources, when we consider our lives, is he worthy of sacrifice? We will give to Jesus in proportion to what we think about him. And if Mary's testimony is any example for us, we ought to love him preeminently. Do we consider him worthy of costly sacrifice? Two, are we a humble people? This is perhaps the chief mark of the Christian life, for we know ourselves to be sinners. We know ourselves to be undeserving. We know ourselves to be the foremost among all sinners. And yet Jesus chased us down in our sin and rescued us and brought us into his kingdom forever as priests. Are we a humble people? Do we set at his feet or do we make him to set at our feet? 
3. In the face of increasing cultural and worldly hostility, is our identity grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone? Mary was caught up in his transcendent glory. She was lost in him. If there's a fear in you, a fear of some public display of holiness, of living a holy life, we're not talking about uh, prideful, egotistical, or self-righteousness in the public sphere. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a pure and simple devotion to Christ, a peace that surpasses all understanding. That's what we're talking about. If there's a fear, ask God to free you from it. Let's find our security in Jesus alone. Four, what draws your mind off of Jesus? The crowds were fickle. They moved from one thing to another. So what things distract you from the wonder of the gospel? What things are vying and even winning your attention? What things are weighing down your mind and your heart and keeping you from fellowship with our great God? It was Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What keeps you from being filled with all the fullness of God? And finally, if you are here and you are not in Christ, what keeps you from running to him? Do you know a better Lord and Master? Are you yourself a better Lord and Master? The remarkable thing is if you consider his love for Mary, know this, that that same love is extended to all of those who are his children. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Run to him, run to him, he will have you. Let's pray.